Great news for Informed Pregnancy Plus subscribers. Dive into our Core Connection course included with your subscription. Hosted by Natalie Headings, a pre- and postnatal exercise specialist and ACSM certified personal trainer, she's an incredible teacher. This five-video series equips you with essential insights to understand what your pelvic floor and core are, how they work, and how to enhance pelvic floor and core strength and proper function during and after your pregnancy and birth. Learn about pelvic floor basics, key postural adjustments, effective muscle releases, and breathing techniques for a healthier core and floor. Don't wait. Visit informedpregnancy.tv and get started with the invaluable core connection today. Welcome to the Informed Pregnancy and Parenting Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Elliot Berlin. Our guest this episode is best known for her work as an award-winning fashion designer, launching her eponymous women's wear collection at just 24 years of age. Her fashions have been displayed on the runways of Paris and New York for over a decade, with her namesake line appearing in stores like Barney's, Neiman Marcus, and Saks Fifth Avenue. You can also find her collaborations with brands and retailers like Target, which I sometimes shop at, and Juicy Couture, which is where I find most of my best looks. Alongside her passion for fashion is her love of interior design. Over the years, her homes and workspaces have appeared in publications like Vogue, Elle, Decor, and Domino. Don't order yet. She recently unveiled her first commercial design project, the Jane Club, a Los Angeles-based co-working space for women. She currently lives between New York and Los Angeles with her husband and two sons. And hold on to your seats because I have so many questions about her two distinctly unique birth stories. Erin Featherston, welcome to the podcast. Hi. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, my goodness. It's been a <laughs> few years in the making. Yeah. Okay. I want to talk fashion. I want to talk about your first birth, which was an interesting experience, and then your second birth, which was an interesting experience. Yeah. I'm serious, guys. Hold on to your seats. Let's start at the very beginning. Where are you from? Where'd you grow up? Well, I grew up in Northern California in the Bay Area. NorCal. Yeah. Sounds like a diet food when you say it that way. <laughs> <laughs> when did you find your eye for fashion? I think that I always imagined myself becoming a fashion designer, but it was a pretty far out dream to have growing up in the Bay Area. Fashion was a pretty abstract concept. I went to UC Berkeley for undergrad, and when I graduated, I moved to Paris to go to Parsons in Paris. And oh, wow. so it wasn't really until I was already out of school that I really got to sink my teeth into fashion. And I sort of did like a very expedited post-grad program and then just put together my first runway show there in Paris when I was just 24. That's so bold. Who does that? I kind of think it was a little bit of the ignorance is bliss. Like, I think if I had really understood what I was in for, I probably would have been too scared to do it. But mm -hmm. because I just, you know, was full of passion, I just went for it and it kind of worked out. Were you, as a kid, were you always into clothing? Yeah, I was really into clothing. I was really into everything creative. I was into writing. I was really into theater. I was into acting. And to me, the clothes were always just 
the really important part of whatever I was doing. I felt yeah. like if you got the clothes right, then you could really transport yourself into any character, any situation. Right. It's true. All those other things that you just mentioned all have clothing in common. Yeah. If you master this, you can get into any of those fields if you wanted to. What inspires your designs? Like, who who inspires you? Oh, well, I mean, I've been at it for so long, so... The inspiration process is simple and also layered and complex. I think at the heart of it, what's always worked about my brand is that I'm actually always kind of designing for myself and using whatever I'm personally into as a compass. And I think that's why my clothes resonate with other women is that there's something really authentic about it. It's by a woman for a woman. But then on top of that, there's always fun narratives and layers, whether it's, you know, like different icons or places in time or little stories. I mean, it's very layered. Mm. I wonder that doesn't really work for men. These shorts were designed by a man for a man. <laughs> it's just like, who cares? But in women, it does. It's a lot more personal. Yeah. There's a lot more that goes into your guys' decision making. Um, so, that first runway show, how'd it go? Well, it was pretty amazing. I think that I just really got very lucky. I was very young and I actually did something sort of unorthodox, which is I showed my first collection on something called Off Calendar during Ocouture Week instead of during Ready to Wear. And I think people were just kind of curious, actually, who is this young American girl in Paris who's putting on a show in Ocouture? I mean, like you said, it was very um, bold. Mm-hmm. And I just got lucky, and I had it turn out, and I think people felt sort of the charm and whimsy of what it was. And I think it was a mix of being in the right time and place, but it caught on. It definitely got a following right away, and I got momentum. And after a few years of living in Paris, I moved to New York in 2007 and really spent the the next decade building my brand, building a company there. In New York City? Mm Mm-hmm. And uh, how is that industry in New York? It's pretty tough business. It is. <laughs> yeah. Very but, competitive? Yeah, it's definitely very competitive and very fast-paced. It's uniquely challenging because, I mean, there have been innovations, but at the end of the day, making clothes is still very much like an 18th century technology, but we're living in a world of very fast-paced consumer expectations. Mm. So. Over the course of my time of doing it, I mean, I remember when I started, I just did two collections a year, and then it was three. And then, you know, after 10 years, we were doing, you know, one collection per month plus extra collections. So it's like 12 to 14 collections a year, and then sometimes you would be doing special collaborations or other projects. So it just became very, very fast-paced, very intense Pace. I'm trying to picture a restaurant. Like if they would change their menu every month and come out with an all new menu. Yeah. There's so much work and creation that goes yeah. into it. When did you come out to Los Angeles? Well, I moved to Los Angeles when I was pregnant with my first child. I, I think I flew like the very last day you can fly. It must have been about seven and a half oh, months. Oh, into pregnant. your pregnancy. Oh. Yeah. I was seven and a half months pregnant, and during the course of that pregnancy, I just became sure that we needed to move to Los Angeles, even though we had our entire life set up in New York. Oh, wow. I think because I grew up in California, I just had this really strong calling to come back to the West Coast. And I literally remember feeling like as my 
you know, belly was getting bigger and being pregnant, like there just wasn't enough space for me in New York. Like I just felt like I need to expand. My body's expanding and I just need space around me. I had that exact same experience in second grade. (laughs) (laughs) And I was in New York. I can relate to you. I just couldn't hop on a plane and move my life. I didn't feel like it was a very um, pregnancy-friendly experience there. It was so much better when I got to L.A. But probably only with the mania that I had of, like, pregnancy hormones could I have made such a radical life change like that. I don't know, but you just seem like you see what you want and you just go. and like We just went. It was tough, though, because the the logistics around doing that move, we rented out our apartment in New York thinking that we had a place lined up here and then that fell through. So then we ended up in like a short-term rental in New York and those are just generally awful. And then we had to actually stay in a little room at a friend's house. Oh, no. <laughs> and stay in this little bed. I was so pregnant. And then we actually didn't get into our real house here in L.A. until three weeks before my due date. And then we did like a quickie renovation. So Whoa. fortunately, the baby came two weeks late because I needed every single day that I could get. Did you have like a birth team assembled here? Yes, I did. I was really fortunate because my best friend lives in L.A. and she now has five children. And she was really helpful in connecting me with her birthing people. So even before I did the move, what I did was I set up – I had actually a midwife in New York so I could get prenatal care in New York. And then when I was about four months pregnant, I came to L.A. and I set up a midwife so I could get bi-coastal care. Wow. How often do you hear that? Yeah. Well, it's just kind of how that happened. Yeah. And you had cross-country care. Yeah. So you knew a little bit earlier that you were going to be moving here. Yeah. And then um, what kind of team did you have here? For that first pregnancy, I had a midwife and a doula. I was planning for a home birth. Okay. So that was something I felt really strongly about during the pregnancy. So everything that I put together was towards that goal. Where did home births become a thing for you? I think I actually was introduced to by my friend Kimberly Vanderbeek, mm-hmm. who had delivered her first child in the hospital and then did her subsequent children at home and is a real advocate of home birth. Well, it's, uh, yeah, it's interesting because she's in our film. We have a film, Heads Up, The Disappearing Art of Vaginal Breach Delivery. And she, I think, gave birth at home because her, yeah. she had because a breech baby. Joshua, and yeah. Her doctor was like, oh, you can't do that. We're not going to do that. And the doctor who was willing to do it does home birth. Yeah. So, and then she's like, I didn't really choose home birth. Home birth chose me. And then she's like, I'm so glad it chose me. Yeah. Well, I was lucky that Kimberly was you know, a a great friend. And as an experienced mom, she was a natural person for me to get advice from. And I think really made a big difference in doing such a radical cross-country move when you're pregnant, feeling like you have someone whose advice you can trust. And support. Yeah. So I just, I don't know. I've always been a very um, naturalistic person. So I haven't really seen a regular doctor in a really long time or, or taken any pharmaceuticals and probably since I was 17. So uh, when I got off my Claritin allergy medicine. <laughs> so I, I just like the, the whole concept of home birth really resonated with my values. And I guess I had a lot of fear around the 
potential interventions that could take place at the hospital. So I was really convinced that home birth was exactly what I wanted to do. Were you nervous about it at all? It's interesting. I, I'll have to say, ironically, I, it, it reminds me of a little bit talking about my first runway show. I, I think there was kind of an ignorance is bliss factor at play. So I, I feel like I almost went into that birth a little bit overconfident. Uh, also, I mean, we'll get to exactly what happened. But looking back on it, I think that I really thought I could handle it. And actually, I probably should have been a little more worried. Interesting. <laughs> well... I can't think of a better cliffhanger. Why don't we take a quick break? We'll come right back and talk about your birth story. Don't go anywhere. We have Erin Featherston. <laughs> this episode is sponsored by an innovative product that's made a big difference for parents and babies alike. Dr. Mom Butt Bomb. As a parent of four, I've had my fair share of battles with diaper rash, often resorting to thick, unpleasant pastes. I only recently discovered Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, and I was immediately impressed by its pleasant consistency and ease of application. This pediatric-approved skin protectant is free from dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide, making it perfect for your baby's sensitive skin. It's designed by a doctor who's also a mom, ensuring your little one gets the gentlest care. A small dab is all it takes to soothe and protect, avoiding the mess and hassle of traditional treatments. With ingredients like dimethicone and petrolatum, Dr. Mom Butt Bomb not only soothes, but also restores your baby's delicate skin. Available on Amazon.com and Walmart.com, it's the smart choice for every parent wanting to keep diaper rash at bay. Remember, with Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, nothing comes between you and your baby. Not even diaper rash. Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. We're talking to Erin Featherston. So you're planning for a home birth because you're a natural kind of person. Yeah. Um, and you had surrounded yourself with midwife and doula and your partner. Was anybody else planning to be at that birth besides the baby eventually? Uh, no, it was just going to be my husband, the midwife, who, who brought in a partner as well, who was another midwife who also had 10 years of emergency room experience. So that sounded like a good credential. <laughs> and And the doula. So that was the plan. And they told us, you know, everything we needed to get to be prepared. So we got a birthing tub. I remember my husband was in charge of, like, changing the plumbing fixtures so that we could connect the hose hose (laughs) from the sink to the bathtub. I mean, every time I hear someone who's planning for hospital birth complain about how they have to pack their bag to go to the hospital, (laughs) I always think, well, you have no idea what a pain it is to convert (laughs) your home into, like, a quasi-hospital space. A birthing space. Because I felt like we had a lot to do. Um, How did your labor start? You said you were two weeks beyond your due date. I was almost two weeks. I guess maybe in the end it was nine days. But when you're planning for a home birth, that can become problematic because if you go over 42 weeks, then you need to have a doctor. Yeah, well, you need to have a doctor at least present. So so the scope of practice for midwives in California is 37 to 42. So you could do home birth, but midwives can't do it. You have to have a doctor who delivers at home, which we have a couple in this town. Yes, and we had like that contingency plan. In case. And I should mention that with that team I spoke about, I did have an OB backup. On the, uh, yeah. Yeah. 
So how did your labor start? Well, you know, as those days were going by, I was like, oh, okay, we need to like do what we can to naturally stimulate this. So I was starting to go to acupuncture and doing castor oil on the oh, belly wow. and the taking herbs. Yeah, because I, I was just getting nervous, like if it was going to get too you know, past that 42-week mark. I didn't want to have to change my birth plan. So I was obviously, like, on the lookout for the signs of early labor, and I woke up on a Tuesday morning, and I just felt kind of, like, crampy, and I told my husband, like, yeah, you should cancel any plans you have tonight because tonight it's going to be going down. You had a feeling. I had a feeling. I, I felt like this is going to be it. So, yeah, I spent that whole day relaxed. It was funny. I had a design meeting I remember at 11 a.m. I had like a, someone who I'd never worked with before come to my front door and I opened the door and I was like, <laughs> hi, yeah, I think I'm in early labor. And you imagine like I'm almost 10 months pregnant. So uh, <laughs> this huge belly is like, I think I'm in labor, but let's just have the meeting anyways. <laughs> I want to look at the fabric swatches. <laughs> so I had a meeting. Oh, wow. And it passes the time. Yeah. We called everyone on our birth team to just give them a heads up. And I remember the midwife came over around 8 p.m. and said, you know, don't get too excited. Like, I agree you're in early labor, but since it's your first baby, it might not go that fast. So just try and sleep and see what happens. She she didn't think anything was going to happen that night. Well, like two hours later, we were timing my contractions and they were, I forget, you know, like three or four minutes apart, but it was like, this is on. So we called her and she came back. So every, the team was there and it was definitely very intense. I had prepared myself more in the the modality of like hypnobirthing going into mm-hmm. that labor. And I thought that that was going to serve me plus just other mindfulness practice that I had been cultivating for years. I thought I could really rely on that. And I would say that that was useful for that stage of labor. Mm-hmm. What ended up happening was, you know, my water never broke and... I think around one in the morning, I got into the birthing tub, which was great. I remember like, oh, finally, some relief because I just, the like pain in my low back was very intense and getting into the water was like, oh, okay, this feels good. So at around one in the morning, the lights are down and they kind of, like the midwives kind of have a flashlight and this particular midwife who I was working with, who I really loved, did have a very hands-off approach. So she was never going to give me an internal examination to gauge how dilated I was. I guess she was just going from her feeling. The noises you were making? Uh... Um, yeah. And you know, as we'll talk about the, the next one, I, I actually wanted to have much more hands-on after this experience. But no one ever really checked to see how dilated I was. So I was in that tub, and everyone starts getting excited. And they're saying, like, we can see the head, we can see the hair coming out. So I'm thinking it's one in the morning. I'm, like, pretty close to crossing the finish line here. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've never given birth before, so I have no frame of reference. And <laughs> You know, the contractions were intense. It was really intense. I was ready for that to be over. So I was kind of, like, excited. Everyone was excited. They were, like, shining this flashlight in the water, and they kept telling me that they could, like, see the head coming out. And then they actually instructed me to get up out of the tub like, and I think they were trying to bring me onto a birthing stool thinking, like, the baby was crowning. It was going to come out at that moment. Mm-hmm. And when I got out of the tub, it was like someone sucked the air out of the room. 
And I think everyone realized that they made a mistake. And what they had seen was just the sac coming oh. out, the membranes, because it hadn't ruptured yet. So it kind of looked like a water balloon coming out. Oh, so the baby's head wasn't down It yet. wasn't the baby's head at all. Ooh. And And I think everyone kind of looked like, oh, oh, shoot, you know, because we thought we were crossing the finish line. And, you still and no, then now you have no idea where the finish line is. Yeah. And then things just kind of Did they like, check you at that point? No. Oh, still not. No. No one ever checked me at any point during that labor, which I, I, I kind of wish I had been checked. So... In the moment, were you opposed to checking or just was not brought up as you an know, option? You know, in... Theory, the whole like trust your body, your body knows what it's doing, you can birth your own baby, like all of that philosophy sounded so great and beautiful and natural. But like at the end of the day, I think it would have been useful for me to have a little bit more insight into what was going because from that point, then they basically instructed me to like lay down on my bed and on my back and pull my legs up. And I did hard pushing for four hours. And that's when the hypnobirthing preparation just <laughs> failed. And I just felt like, what huh. is this hard pushing? Like, nobody prepared me for this. And I remember th- them, them instructing me to push harder. And I just thought, oh, my God, there is nothing harder than this. Hmm. Like, there's no push harder setting that I can tap into. And it was just very exhausting. I just remember, like, my neck was so tired. Like, my whole body was just so exhausted from my head to my toes. And... After four hours of that, I ended up actually just taking a break from everyone and going to labor alone, sitting on the toilet in, in the my bathroom. bathroom. Yeah, and then do. the crazy like side story was all of a sudden I'm in there alone and I'm hearing like sirens, like ambulance, like real sirens. And it's 5 a.m. And I was thinking, oh, my God, are they like calling like medics the on medics on me, like I've got this. Like, don't you know? I don't want to transfer. Wow. <laughs> like, we're in this. Yeah. And what had happened was a car on our road had like just been speeding along and crashed into the barrier wall of our neighbor's house. Oh wow! Which was just weird. So there was all these like ambulance lights going, and so I don't know. Random. It was just it was random and just weird. Yeah. But kind of a weird omen and. I ended up just laboring alone on the toilet, and I thought I was going to die. It it was very hard. It was just really intense. And uh, the baby ended up crowning there, and they sort of just kind of – I just felt like I just got jerked from the toilet onto the birthing stool, and the baby came out there. And my baby was a big guy. He was 9 pounds and 24 inches long. Wow. And the poor thing, like, when I looked down, he kind of had, like, a cone head. Oh, yeah. A very purple cone head that I almost was like, oh, oh my God, is he okay? <laughs> um, but me, I was just really in shock after the four hours of pushing. And I don't know, I ended up, like, fainting. I had major blood loss. They had to – the midwife – could sense I was hemorrhaging, so she kind of had to expedite pushing out the placenta. Mm-hmm. There was so much blood, and I just insisted on showering. No one wanted me to take a shower, but I just had to, like, rinse myself, and then I fainted in the shower. Oh, boy. Uh, My whole body was shaking, and then I just felt like I was laying on the bathroom floor, which was so awful. And then the midwife wanted to kind of take a look to see if I required any type of repair. 
And then she kind of told me, I'm a little intimidated by what I see, and I think we need to call the backup doctor. Oh, no. By the way, like, the baby was born at 6.02 a.m. So then we called the backup doctor, and I'm so glad she did. This is a doctor who comes to the home? Well, Or that you go there? No, well, he came to my house. Yeah, that's Thank what I, God, I was yeah, yeah, Dr. Crane. Oh, yeah, he does home. <laughs> the best. So he came, and the so I had some really complex tearing, and it took him an hour and 15 minutes to do the repair. Whoa. And I remember asking him, how many stitches was that? And he, he just was like, there's no count. And I, I don't think anyone quite wanted to tell me at the moment, but basically, I mean, Dr. Crane, who's been delivering babies for like 30 years. Decades, yeah. Yeah, he pretty much said it was the worst tarried scene in oh, his my. whole career. So it was not a joke. I mean, it was really serious stuff. But, you know, that aside, I will say, I totally, once like the shock left my body, I really did experience the euphoria and everything that I, I thought that I would get out of a home birth. And I really felt like my body was kind of destroyed. I really felt also like high as a kite. And my baby was so alert and just like so present, so peaceful. And I'm I'm sure babies can be like that no matter what the birthing circumstances are. But I felt like that was part of why I had chosen to do a home birth. So it was really satisfying. I mean, I actually felt like totally victorious, like a warrior. Like I did that. It's really hard to even process all the emotions that you're talking about and feelings, mind and body, yeah. that happened in that like short period of time. And it's a, it's a longer period of, you know, you just concentrated a lot of time into that. You know, that didn't all just happen in five minutes. Right, but, yeah. But um, but still, what, whether it was an hour, two hours, three hours, it's just so much to experience. It's hard to even hear it, like process it, yeah. listening to it. Um, I want to take another quick break and then come back and talk about your recovery. Yeah. Okay. We'll be right back with Aaron Featherston. <laughs> hey, everyone. It's Dr. Berlin, and I want to talk to you about something that is close to my heart, literally, omega-3. It's a crucial nutrient that's sadly overlooked. With 95% of women deficient, Needed, the supplement brand I trust, created their brand new Omega-3 Soft Gels. Designed by perinatal experts, they support you and your baby's well-being from fertility to pregnancy and beyond. Unlike other brands, Needed's Omega-3 is sustainable, pesticide-free, and third-party tested for purity. Plus, my favorite, it has a milder taste and smell, perfect for sensitive mamas. Don't wait. Visit thisisneeded.com and use code BERLIN to get 20% off your initial order. Experience the needed difference, consciously crafted for your health and the planet. Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. We're talking to Erin Featherston. And wow, what a birth journey. Yeah. Really. So you you had a lot of trauma, physical yeah. trauma. At the end of your birth and a lot of stitching. Like you said, Dr. Crane's been, he's seen everything twice and yeah. 
you impressed him. <laughs> yeah, in the worst possible way. Yeah. <laughs> I uh, hold the worst. I mean, I, tearing I, goes up to fourth degree. Yeah, so, I uh, mean, everyone almost, yeah, basically everyone was like, this is at least the longest baby we'd ever seen. Mm-hmm. So we kind of had that superlative going. And then, oh, look at you. This is the worst tear we've ever seen. Wow. So, so how's recovery from that? Well, it took a long time. And truthfully, I'm probably still have like more stages of of real recovery ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, Physical or emotional or both? I'd say I feel emotionally recovered at this point, but I, I think just like physically, it's still not 100%. Yeah. I mean, there's still some some recovery to do. Basically, once that happened, I again, people don't really talk about what it really means to have a tear and what I, I think I didn't really understand the nature or complexity or depth of my injury until almost a whole year passed, and I realized I haven't gotten better. Mm-hmm. So That's I remember how I felt right away, which was I actually felt really proud of myself. I felt so strong, like I did that, and that was so hard, and I made it. And I was so in love with my baby. So I felt like kind of victorious and I knew that I had, you know, this bad tearing, but well, of course it was bad and it would take a while to heal. So my expectation was, yeah, this is going to take a while. But then like six months passed and you're like, oh, okay, this is not really healing. In what way at six months, for example? Um, well, I think like the real complexity of the tear just like the overall integrity of my pelvic floor was pretty compromised from the tearing. So I just remember walking around feeling like all my organs were going to kind of like fall out from my body. It's a, it's a very uncomfortable way to feel. And just simple things like like for exercise, I always loved um, rebounding on a trampoline. That was like my 30 minutes a day for so many years. And like there was absolutely no way I could jump on a trampoline right. because – there just was like not the stability required so for any kind of up and down movement. Anatomically, the pelvic floor is like a hammock of muscle that sits underneath your pelvic organs, your bladder, rectum, and uterus. And so if it gets stretched out or, you know, compromised, there's nothing really holding them up anymore. So if yeah. you can picture trying to jump on the trampoline, there's yeah. no support for your pelvic organs. And just even if you kind of think about it from, um, like the chakra, like the root chakra is all about security. And I, I think I, it really did feel like I, I just got the rug pulled out from under me physically and, and emotionally just dealing with that. And it's awkward because it's an invisible injury. No one else can really see it unless you choose to tell them about it. Mm-hmm. So, Were you feeling pain? Yeah, I was feeling pain like you know, going to pee every time, like, hurt. So just dealing with, like, <laughs> I said, I'm just, like, one sneeze away from total disaster. <laughs> oh, well. <laughs> well, I'm glad you can laugh about it now. Um, were um, you doing therapies at that time to try to recover well, from it? I really started to realize, like, I need to really, you know, find some, some more effective therapies around the one-year mark because, like, some of the more basic stuff I was doing, it just wasn't getting better. And and I do want to speak to really what I think the biggest issue that I had was usually when women tear, I mean, it, there's a lot of different ways you can tear, but what was so bad about my tear and what made um, Dr. Crane say, oh, this is so, was the worst tear I'd ever seen, was that it wasn't like front to back. It wasn't a straight line. It was kind of like a zigzaggy jigsaw puzzle. Mm-hmm. 
inside, outside, all over the place. So it was very hard for it to heal. And as a result, I ended up having a lot of scar tissue and scar tissue that was very, very internal and then more at the surface. And down there, you have like so many layers of tissues and you have elasticity because they all can kind of move in different directions at different times. But if you have scar tissue sort of like going through it, it, it's sort of... it's hard to explain. It's kind dysfunctional. Of, it doesn't function the way. Yeah, you just don't. Tissue. You can't even like move. Like I could just even feel it when I was walking. Yeah. Well, normal human tissue has, like, let's say, a muscle. Just a regular muscle has muscle cells which are lined up in need organized fashion, and they can contract in waves and create movements for you. But scar tissue is your body just saying, "Oh my God, we got a problem." Just dumping down whatever kind of random components it can to heal. You know, like putting bubble gum in the water cooler in the hot water heater when it's about to I don't know why I just pulled that out (laughs) (laughs) so um, anyway it's just random dysfunctional tissue it doesn't work the way a muscle works so if you have a lot of it then yeah your muscle doesn't do what it's supposed to do the way it's supposed to do it when it's supposed to do it yeah and there's a lot of functions in that yeah so actually I have to say it was in a way thanks to you that I found the person who helped me most because I was listening to your podcast, and then I I think I jumped to another podcast, and uh, the woman who was being interviewed was Kimberly Johnson. Mm -hmm. I'm sure you're familiar with her. She's she's a sexological body worker. And the interview that I listened to, she was talking about her personal story. She also had a very difficult birth and then had a recovery journey to repair her pelvic floor, deal with scar tissue, and she was sharing about how then she became a practitioner, basically, to help women recover from this. And in the course of the interview, she referenced her mentor, who she learned everything from, a woman by the name of Ellen Heed, who practices out of Mar Vista. Mm. So I was like, I think I need to find this woman. Ellen. Ellen. And I did. I reached out to her. She might be one of the most brilliant people I've ever met. She's a somatic healer, and she's really a master of many modalities. So she kind of has her own very, like, layered and integrative approach. But because she's also licensed as a sexological body worker, she has scope to work internally. And Mm -hmm. above all, she's really an expert in scar tissue remediation. Oh, wow. And that was just the type of very specialized expertise that I needed because, like, when I was just going to my OB, he was saying, well, I could try and do a revision surgery for example. That was like the surgical option. And I just felt like more stitches and cutting and surgery doesn't doesn't feel like the way that I want to go. So when I met Ellen, she worked with me for really like a year and a half. And it wasn't just the work she did. She, She was great because she also just taught me things that I could do to help. And some things were really simple. That was actually what was cool about it. What kind of things? Um, Like the magic of castor oil. Mm -hmm. Castor oil. Just applying castor oil? Yeah, I would basically soak cotton tampons in castor oil and insert them. And that actually had a very, very effective... um, Loosening up scar tissue? Yeah. Oh. And castor oil different kinds of massage, different exercises. Massage that you can do for yourself? Inter- yeah, internal yeah. massage. I mean, she would do that because sometimes you just can't get in there by sure. yourself. But or she- it's certainly not the way somebody yeah. else. You don't <laughs> yeah. have the right angle. <laughs> yeah. 
And she even worked with me on my diet. I mean, I'm basically a lifelong vegan. I've gone through, you know, various phases of having like fish in my diet. But she was pretty adamant that I needed to actually have more collagen and protein sources to really heal. Mm-hmm. And I was not trying to hear that. I remember <laughs> being, I was very resistant to that advice. But actually, I, I just started to like eat a lot of wild salmon and a lot more raw fat like coconut mana and avocado. And I think it actually really did make a difference. So it sounds like you got real tools targeted for your exact mm-hmm. injury. Yeah. And it didn't get all better. I mean, things actually even continued to improve while I was during my second pregnancy. And I, I think there's still like room to improve, but I at least got my body to a state where it feels like, okay, it's functional because it was definitely like Still not out on the of rebounder? <laughs> I, don't, I truthfully don't think I'll ever be able to tr- jump on the trampoline again. Makes you feel better. I'm not jumping on trampoline <laughs> either. So, um, yeah, and I, I miss that aspect of exercise because I used to really like running and jumping and I mean, maybe I'll surprise myself and I'll be able to work back up to that kind of exercise one day, but... But the improvements that you feel are, I'm asking, more stable, less pain, better function? Yeah. Oh. And and I think that part of what Ellen did, too, is something they just call pelvic floor mapping, where they really also, they map out, like, where these scars are and let's track them and measure them. Mm-hmm. And so we saw over the course of working together for 18 months that... Some of the scars completely disappeared, some shrunk. So we can kind of quantitatively measure the healing. Mm -hmm. And yeah, we actually got like many of them just vanished over time. Wow. That's incredible that you found her. Now I'm glad that we did the podcast. Yeah. And we've been doing it for all these years. Just just for that one story. It's all worthwhile. Yeah. Um, You mentioned a second pregnancy, which based on everything you've been through is just a feat all by itself. Right. Um, Let's take one more break and then come back and talk about that pregnancy and birth. Okay. We'll be right back with Erin Featherston. Welcome back to the Informed Pregnancy Podcast. We're talking to Erin Featherston. So after all that trauma, it seems like it could be daunting to even try for another pregnancy. Yeah, it was. I definitely had a lot of mixed emotions because I well, I will say I just like love being a mom, so in love with my first son, and I really did want to have another child. I grew up as an only child, so I was like determined to – I don't have a fixed number of children that I want to have, but I just wanted to have more than one. Okay. So I did really want that. But yes, on the other hand, I was very fearful of, can I even do it again? It was so hard. I just had a lot of fears this time around the delivery. And also that I would tear again and that I would go back to the beginning because like healing from this injury, really at a certain point, it felt like it became like a full-time job. I mean, I was having to work on it like every single day, always thinking about it. And it's just kind of a pain. you know. <laughs> and I just felt like, God, I don't want to do this all over again. So when I got pregnant, I was happy, but I was also scared. But this time, I actually think that the fear was in the end of the day useful. So I, I told it's you what I was missing from the first. Yeah, birth. it was what was missing from the first one. I think I was just a little bit too trusting or 
I just loved, you know, there's a lot of different rhetoric that you can get into in pregnancy, right? There's so much literature. There's so many different schools of thought. And I really just loved the one that, oh, your body won't create a baby bigger than you can deliver and it knows what to do. And I think all of that is true, but maybe doesn't also take into consideration like our bodies are not existing in the Garden of Eden state and we, like we're up against There's some, other factors. There are a lot of factors. So when I found out that I was pregnant, I felt like, okay, this is all hands on deck and I need to really take a different approach to A, prepare myself and B, to try and find the right people and conditions that I can minimize the risk of tearing again. And I'll say, like, just emotionally and mentally, I felt very torn because even though I felt that my body did suffer from the first birth, I really, really did believe in the benefit that my son got from a no-intervention home birth. Hmm. So I felt already the complexity of going to a second one where I thought, I can't let myself get that hurt again. But, but I don't want to shortchange my second child on what I thought was really positive for my first child. So I already kind of felt like I was in a bind. Did you ever consider a cesarean to avoid the whole? No. I 100% did not want to consider a cesarean, and I'll tell you why. From working with Ellen and what I learned just oh, from spending so much tissue. time with her, she talked to me a lot about what scar tissue remediation can look like from cesarean birth and how complex that can be to heal. Mm-hmm. And I felt like, okay, if I'm going to have like one area of my body that's, <laughs> that's like already. scarred and broken, like I'd rather have one than two. Oh, fair enough. So I actually really didn't want to have to do a cesarean. And I still wanted to do an all-natural unmedicated birth. So my thinking throughout the pregnancy was I I have to change some part of the formula because I want to have a different outcome. So psychologically, I was like, okay, I'm not going to work with a midwife. I'm going to work with the OB, Dr. Crane, who was the backup on my first birth and then who kind of gave me follow-up care. And I just felt like because he'd seen it firsthand I felt like he was really... He certainly knows your case. He really knew my case, and I felt like he just really didn't want to see me have that tear again either. And early on, I remember he talked to me about a episiotomy, and I thought that sounded really horrific, and I didn't like that idea either. It was very it took me a very long time to warm up to a episiotomy, but we'll, well, we'll get to that. Well, in his mind, a episiotomy to prevent a bigger tear. Exactly. His point was... A little tear is better than a episiotomy, but a episiotomy is better than a big tear because a controlled cut can heal much better than like sort of the jigsaw puzzle thing that I had. Right. So you're you're giving up your best possible option to avoid your worst possible option. Right. So I decided I would work with Dr. Crane, and my plan was to deliver at Cedars. And I still wanted to have an unmedicated birth, but I thought if I do have tearing, maybe it can be better addressed in a hospital setting was kind of my thinking. Mm -hmm. And then as soon as I was pregnant, I called Ellen, too, to let her know. And she connected me with a really amazing doula, Deborah Raoul. And I connected with Deborah, and Deborah offered these really, really amazing preparation workshops sort of in the world of – she is like doing kind of a hybrid of continuum 
movement. And I mean, she's also a prenatal yoga teacher, but she has a very incredible understanding of the pregnant body and different things you can do to help it. So while I had relied on more hypnobirthing for the first pregnancy, this time I felt like, okay, I just need different tools. And I read Birthing from Within, Mm. which is more the school that Deborah's operating out of. And I went to all these like six hour long birthing workshops and worked on the ball, but really spent a lot of time focusing on exercises I could do every single day for my own body's alignment, like understanding how, you know, it's not just to get that baby out. It's not just when your cervix dilates. Mm -hmm. I think I learned a lot more about you can start kind of preparing your tissue through sounding work and all kinds of all kinds of crazy things that I did with her that actually I think really worked. So basically, yeah, that was the plan. So your plan was hospital, hospital birth, birth with Dr. Crane and, and I was just doing a lot different preparation work, more pain coping techniques. Mm-hmm. So whereas my first pregnancy I sort of just trusted that I could like I don't know, through hypnobirthing, like just not feel the pain. This time it was like, pain's going to be hard. It's going to be real. And let's prepare your body to meet the pain. I remember one of the exercises that in the end of the day I actually feel was so valuable and it seems so simple was something they call the ice practice, which is where you hold ice cubes in your hand. And the purpose of it is to desensitize your nervous system. Mm-hmm. So I remember the first time she had me hold the ice cube for one minute. And I felt like, oh, I'm such a wimp. I can't do it. Like It was burning my hands yeah. so badly. And then you take a like a minute break and then you have to hold it again. And the idea is that minute is kind of like when you have a contraction. So you're starting to train your body even mentally and on a like, nervous system level how to cope with that pain. Feel something intense and relax into it. Yeah, or just at least for me, the ice thing showed me that like it'll be over. Like, you know, you know, like the end is coming and then you get a break. Mm -hmm. So I would do every night when I was giving my three-year-old son a bath, I would be holding the ice cubes (laughs) with my little timer and and practicing that. So basically, you want to hear the Yeah, how did that one start? (laughs) So again, I was past my due date, which I was expecting. I also was a little bit psyched out because as I told you, my first son was nine pounds, 24 inches. Uh, My husband is six foot five and the men on my side of the family are all kind of like six, three to six, seven, like very big guys in my family. So, and I knew I was having a boy and every time Dr. Crane did a ultrasound, ultrasound, he was like, oh, this baby looks really big (laughs) and I hope he's not going to be 10 pounds. Oh, wow. So I was like, kind of like, oh God, I don't want you to be too overdue because you know I was scared this time I understood like the bigger they are like the harder, harder they fall <laughs> the harder it is to get them out it can be so I actually went and got acupuncture from Dr. Liu mm-hmm. and I don't know if that worked it seemed to have worked because that was Friday Friday morning I got acupuncture Friday night I remember I put my son to bed at 8 p.m. I was so tired I just fell asleep myself and that whole night I know that I was having early labor contractions, but I was so exhausted. I just slept right through it. But I was kind of integrating the sensation into my dreams. And I had like a visualization of every time I felt the the contraction, I imagined like I was pushing through double doors, like really heavy double doors, mm. like in a hospital or like an institutional kind of building. I was just pushing through. 
And that was how I imagined it. And that was like my dream. I just in my dream, I just kept going down this corridor and just had to keep bursting through these double doors. But so pretty much sleeping through. So I slept through probably eight hours of early labor. Wow. So when I woke up Saturday morning, because I'd been asleep, like I knew it happened, but I don't think I had a very good gauge of really how much it was. Mm-hmm. It was Saturday morning. I told again my husband, I said, I will give birth today. But I just didn't think it would be until that night. Mm-hmm. I think also because my first son, I labored all night from like, you know, 10 p.m. until his birth at 6 a.m. I just kind of equated like intense labor with nighttime. Mm-hmm. I didn't think I could have a daytime yeah, baby. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. So I honestly just was like, why don't you just take our three-year-old and like get out of the house? <laughs> <laughs> And I'll be good. (laughs) And I was on my birthing ball. And I was totally having contractions. And they were intense. But, like, in between these contractions, I was just, like, packing up the car for the hospital. (laughs) Had, like, every intention of going. And every time – I was timing my contractions, but they were just very irregular. It was, like, eight minutes, two minutes, four minutes, five minutes. So I thought, oh, well, this isn't going to be happening. And when you're a person who intends to have an unmedicated birth in a hospital, you receive a lot of cautioning about not getting to the hospital too oh, early. too soon, yeah. So I think I was really scared about going too early. So it was more of, like, the way to out game. That was my plan. But I called my doula and I called Dr. Crane said, I'm in labor, but I just think it'll be a couple of hours. And they were like both, okay, we'll just keep us posted. So that call probably was around 10.30, 10 a.m. I know my husband and my son left the house at 10.30, so I was home alone. I remember like the one thing I just really wanted to do before going to the hospital was take a shower and blow dry my hair because <laughs> I remembered from the first time that I couldn't even stand up for 10 days after I gave birth. So it was a long time before I could really take a good shower and wash my hair. So I got in there and I was like <laughs> washing my hair and then I was blow drying my hair and just having the contractions and just ignoring them and blow drying it. And Dr. Crane called me and he heard me have a contraction on the phone. And this must have been around 1230. And he was like, you're in fully active labor. I can hear it. <laughs> he was tell. like, I, I was like, yeah, I know, but I just don't know when to go to the hospital. And he said, I'll just drive to your house and I'll check you and then we'll go. He called me 15 minutes later. He heard another contraction on the phone. He's like, yeah, I, I, maybe you should just come and meet me at the hospital. I said, I can't. I'm I'm home alone. Like, my husband's not here to drive me. I called my husband. They said, I think you better get back here. And he's like, are you sure? Like, Our son's having so much fun. He's like, yeah, just get back here. So basically, Dr. Crane showed up at my house at 1.49. I know because our door answering system has a timestamp. Okay. And both he and I, at this point, are still under the impression that he's just going to check how dilated I am, and then we're going to go to the go hospital. To the hospital. Yeah. So I'm ha- I'm upstairs. I'm having this contraction. I hear the doorbell, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, how am I even going to get downstairs? I wait for it to be over, run down there, open the door for him. He looked at me. He's like, where do you want to do this? And I really easily could have, like, said, like, right, just let's do it right here on my brand new velvet couch in the <laughs> living room. And thank God I didn't say that. I, I knew that I had just enough time to make it upstairs before my next contraction. So we went in to the room that would be my 
new baby's room that had a queen size bed. Kind of just like threw a towel down, went down. He checked me and he was like, you're fully dilated. Oh, wow. He said, we're, we're going to have this baby right now. He said, do you feel like you're ready to push? So he got there 149. I would say at 157, my husband, my son came home. And, like, the one thing I just thought I didn't want was, like, my three-year-old jumping all over me while I was in labor. And then there he was, and he was like, (laughs) Mommy! And he was kind of, like, right on top. He's very attached to me. (laughs) And I'm just, like, wailing. You know, I'm using all of the tools that I had worked on for so many months to cope. So, you know, big noises, big sounding, and basically... Dr. Crane was just like, okay, you're just going to have to push. He was, I, I did two pushes and then he was like, I, I'm going to need scissors. So he, his prediction that I would need an episiotomy was correct. Mm-hmm. So he he just yelled at my husband. He was like, just bring me any scissors. Thank God, as you can see, I have bangs and I uh-huh. have oh. really amazing hair scissors. And my husband brought those, not the uh, box cutter. Thank God. <laughs> And Dr. Crane had to use those, like a little incision, which I do want to side note this. I had so much fear about the idea of an unmedicated episiotomy while I was crowning because that's already painful. And I just thought that incision was going to like throw me over the edge. I barely could even tell it happened. It was like nothing because I just already had so much heat and pressure and sensation that I barely could feel it. So it along the lines of that, so I don't, I've been to weird births with him where he's the doctor and I'm the doula. So <laughs> just because home births are usually very woman, woman yeah. everywhere. Um, <laughs> so weird in that sense. But I remember one of them, he's like, I think we should do a little. Also, she had torn a lot with the first. And he said, I think we should just do a little episiotomy and this baby will come right out. And she said, no, but yes. And then... <laughs> And he's like, is that yes, you want to? And then she's like, yes, but I'm really – so that's how she said, yes, but I'm really worried that it's going to be like I feel my flesh cutting. He's like, okay, because I already did it. And then she pushed and the baby came right out. Yeah. Well, that is like something I want to kind of share with the world. Like it it sounded so uh, like antiquated and barbaric to me, the idea of episiotomy. But really – It's a little. In right? the moment. It's a little cut. I didn't feel it. The baby came out in three pushes. Wow. The baby was born at 2.04. Wow. So within 15 minutes of him arriving, you my husband and son came, <laughs> and then the baby was out. And then, like, my doula showed up, like, an hour later. Oh, wow. <laughs> like, <laughs> my housekeeper, who was supposed to, like, babysit the three-year-old while we went to the hospital, showed up. Did you still later. go to the hospital? No. Oh, you just stayed home? No. The baby was born. He was great. He didn't have meconium or anything. I think that's always um, Dr. Crane's number one fear in a home birth is that the baby would have meconium. But he didn't. What about the trauma situation for you? For me? So he had a little bit of tearing, but I was just so happy. Mm. I didn't feel anything the way I felt after my first birth where literally after the first birth not only did I just feel like the intensity of like you know the birth canal and what that had been through I just felt head to toe like I'd been run over by a truck 10 times and with this birth and I really do think it's because I had done so much preparation and I had really had those pain coping mechanisms that I think like the whole thing snuck up on me so fast because I thought Oh, this isn't that bad. I still must have like 10 more hours of suffering ahead of me. That's why I got surprised. 
Yeah. I mean, even when you said that, he took a look and he's like, you're 10 centimeters. I'm like, please don't let that be a mistake. <laughs> you know, just a bag of fluid. Uh, did your water break in some way? No, he had to break it. Wow. I kind of wish he hadn't because I, I really think it's so magical to, like, just have, have a baby in the, the call. So yeah. I don't know if that would have happened, but mm. he did pop it. With what? With your hair scissors? I don't even know what <laughs> don't he even did. Have an am- am- just scratch it. <laughs> Um, what is it? How big was your baby? Oh, well, this baby was not as big as my first one. He was like seven pounds, 13 ounces, and he was 21 inches, which after having a 24-inch baby and a nine-pounder, he really seems so seems small. little. <laughs> he seems so small. I mean, I know that's even still kind of considered a big baby, but he also just seemed delicate. Like when my first son came out, he just already was like... Give he, me had he had bison. <laughs> <laughs> he was just solid. Like he was like born like a three month old, a big three month old. Mm. And this baby, he seemed a little more delicate, but he is now huge. Like mm-hmm. he has grown so fast. Your little guy. Yeah, the second yeah. one. So I just feel he did me the courtesy of doing <sighs> Waiting his growth to grow. <laughs> spurt out of utero because he's quickly uh-huh. catching up with his older brother. This, well, this is one of our longer podcasts, but we covered a lot. You shared so much, and I really appreciate it. I'm always so grateful when somebody has these experiences, and they're very personal and intimate. And I know that your purpose in sharing is to help other people, and I know that you will. So thank you for coming and sharing so openly. I do have this one question. Where can we find you online? Oh, AaronFeatherston.com. That's really difficult. <laughs> <laughs> I love following you on Instagram because you post the most incredibly nice-looking stuff. <laughs> yeah, please follow me on Instagram, Aaron Featherston. Uh, thanks at home for listening. If you have a topic idea, and we're getting a lot of them now, and we're getting to as many of them as we can, but some really great suggestions have come in, so keep sending them. You can visit us at informedpregnancy.com or write to us at info at informedpregnancy.com. This episode is sponsored by an innovative product that's made a big difference for parents and babies alike, Dr. Mom Butt Bomb. As a parent of four, I've had my fair share of battles with diaper rash, often resorting to thick, unpleasant pastes. I only recently discovered Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, and I was immediately impressed by its pleasant consistency and ease of application. This pediatric-approved skin protectant is free from dyes, preservatives, and zinc oxide, making it perfect for your baby's sensitive skin. It's designed by a doctor who's also a mom, ensuring your little one gets the gentlest care. A small dab is all it takes to soothe and protect, avoiding the mess and hassle of traditional treatments. With ingredients like dimethicone and petrolatum, Dr. Mom Butt Bomb not only soothes, but also restores your baby's delicate skin. Available on Amazon.com and Walmart.com, it's the smart choice for every parent wanting to keep diaper rash at bay. Remember, with Dr. Mom Butt Bomb, nothing comes between you and your baby. 
not even diaper rash.